Hey, church. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us online, wherever you might be. It's really a privilege of ours that we can connect in some way during these extremely difficult, challenging, crazy times. If you were or are a church person, um, this whole situation has got you upside down. <laughs> you, it, what we have become so comfortable with uh, so reliant upon, for the most part, is gone. I just want to keep reminding you that just because we cannot gather on Sunday morning doesn't touch even remotely the church and its vitality and its purpose and its capability in the world. Uh, the thing that you need to hang on to now that we don't gather is the community that is yours, that you are connected to in Christ. Don't give up meeting together in any form. You will find yourself off the rails without some community. Stay in small groups. Stay in connection. Doesn't matter. Via text, email, Zoom, or whatever. Take care of yourself this way, please. I beg you <laughs> to stay connected. Um, the Spirit of God lives within the church body, moves within the church body, animates the church body, encourages the church body, and the church body is the church body when it's together. Don't isolate yourself. Work hard to stay connected. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been down and out? I know that's a, that's a, that's a silly question. Of, of course you've been down and out. It's part of life to be down and out in little as well as profound ways. Like here's, this, here's an insignificant example. When we used to gather as a church, I would often stop at Kroger on my way home to pick up some lunch. It would be close to one o'clock. I probably haven't eaten. I've uh, been up since six, done two services. I'm empty tired, socially worn out, just, you know, ready to eat. And I like Kroger. They have a great deli. They make some good pizza. They even have some sushi and some California rolls. They've got chicken. They've got, they make hoagies. Really nice. And then you're in a grocery store, so you can get whatever you want. So I go there and I put myself together some kind of an eclectic lunch, right? And then I go over to the self-checkout and I'm like, beep, 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 beep. And I get my stuff checked out, go for my wallet, and I don't have it. I don't have my wallet. I'm suddenly down. I was up because I loved my little lunch, and now I'm down. And then I remember I have Apple Pay and my Discover card on my phone. So I can just use my phone. So I'm excited. So I'm up again. And I go to swipe it, and I can't find out where to swipe it. So I wave down the attendant. She comes over. I say, there's a whole story. She says, uh, we don't have that technology. Like, oh, so I'm down again. And I know what they're going to do with this food. They just made it for me. They're going to pitch it. So I flag down a manager and I go through the whole routine and tell him, I don't live that far from here. If you would let me take this food, <laughs> go home and get money. I'll bring it back to you because I know what you're going to do with this. And he goes, don't worry. So he, boop, 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 boop. he types in some numbers and he goes, you're good to go. And I said, oh, this is great. I'll come back as soon as I can. He's like, no, you're, you're good. I just covered your lunch. You don't have to worry about it. Just take it and go. And I was like, wow, so there I am. I'm up again. <laughs> that, that's, that's a little example. And I'm sure many of you could state a bunch of examples like that. On the other hand, 
there are profound and tragic downs in life. But even in those, I would imagine, in your memory, you've got examples of being really, really down, crushed, and then finding your way up again. It's life, really. It is. It is cyclical that way. Uh, we, you, another metaphor is a roller coaster, right? You love a roller coaster. But in life, when you're in the top, it's kind of a mixed bag of enjoyment because you, you know it's not going to stay there. It's going to move up and it's going to move down. Have you ever thought about this, though? You can't fully enjoy up having never been down. You, you can't prove that you've got what, it's, what is required to be up if you've never been down. I mean, think about, and maybe, maybe you're in this category, but think about those who have been born into old money. Right? They never had to earn it. You've seen the numbers of stories of depression and suicide that are associated with having it all and never having had to earn it. If you've ever gotten a position in life, not because you've earned it, but because of association, you understand to some degree how dissatisfying it is. Being up isn't the best thing. It's, it's proving that you can get up that really is the best thing. Every Rocky movie ever made centers on this very idea. If you were born in the 80s, you know the Rocky series. There was like, I don't know, 12 of them. And everyone saw half of them. Because you can only endure that story so many times. But it's always the same. Rocky's story is always the same. Down on his luck in life. How's he going to get out of this hole? And then he gets himself together and he gets to the boxing ring. And there it is again. He's down. He's bleeding to death. He's broken in half. He can't see. He can't talk. He could never talk. But when his mouth is busted open, he can't talk even more. And then what happens? Somewhere deep within, he's able to rise up and win, right? Every story, he's down and finds a way up. That's what makes being up great. Getting up where there is no way is the best thing. Today, as we continue this study of the Apostles' Creed, um, we're talking about the greatest up in history, the greatest up in history. And we'll get to that. Where have we been? Let's go through it quickly. The Apostles' Creed thus far invites us to believe in God and some things about Jesus, right? God first, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That is, we're invited to believe in God, who is above all, creator of all, yet surprisingly attentive and compassionate to all, like a father. Above all, creator of all, and sensitive and involved and compassionately merciful to all. Unusually fatherly by most standards of supreme beings. That's the God we are called to believe in. And then Jesus, last week, the first half of things about Jesus, that he was historically recorded, right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was a promised 
uh, uh, Savior. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament history had uh, forecast his arrival. He was heaven sent, uh, heaven conceived, right? Earthly born, yet rejected even as the son of God. And that's just the first part. Here's the second part about Jesus where we're going today. So we believe in that God and we believe in that Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus who was crucified, died and was buried. I'm reading from the creed. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty. From there, he will come to judge the quick and the dead or the living and the dead. So last week we're confronted with the very unusual, vulnerable, suffering, serving son of God. It's a very strange uh, paradox, right? The son of God is vulnerable. He suffered and he was a servant. Something very, very different about this would-be leader. You don't normally see those kinds of things. So something is going on, um, but we're called to believe in that. And then this week, we see this monumental shift. This profound shift from suffering to victorious, from yielded to powerful, from humiliated to exalted, from condemned to judge from, from down as down as you can get to as up as you can get is what we see this week. The gospels make it clear. You can read any of the gospels. They all come at it from a different angle, uh, intending to reach a different audience, but they all make it clear. Jesus by earthly standards was a failed leader. He was a failed leader. That, that, that would, they, they cast him aside. They said no more. They hung him on a cross. He was humiliated. That, that, is the, that is the undertone, if not the central purpose of a public crucifixion is not just to kill you, but to humiliate you. He was humiliated and gone. But, but God, the Father Almighty, wasn't finished. Through some fantastic events, he raises his son from the lowest place and puts him at the highest place. He installs his son as king of God's historic, yet still newly emerging and eventually completed eternal worldwide non-geographic nation of people. Let me say that again. He exalts him and makes him king of a people that have been growing and building for millennia. He is now king of that people and the newly emerging people, followers of Jesus, and the eventually completed perfect kingdom in eternity that will be worldwide non-geographic nation of people. We're asked to believe in and submit to a new king. That's where the creed goes this week. You, there's a new king. And the invitation is to believe in that king. God's son, in fact, newly established as king. And not just king by association. He could have been the son of God. He could have just been put there. But he earned it. He earned it. And that's what we see in the creed. 
It's this process, this pathway to the high seat of honor is very important to see because it helps us believe. And the creed covers all of that without ambiguity. Let's go through it. Crucified, dead, buried. Nothing fancy there. No, no crazy cool words. Just crucified, dead, buried. But all important. No room for misunderstanding. Okay, he wasn't. They don't just say crucified, which why not? What does crucified mean? It means dead, right? Why say crucified dead? Well, here's the thing. Some people managed to make it through an execution. It wasn't very often, but, and, and it was rare to accidentally survive. Now, so, but there should be no argument. There can be no argument that he was dead. So he was crucified and dead. That's what they say it. He didn't escape. God didn't rescue him yet. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't survive because he was God. He could have. So it's like, you know, he's executed, crucified, dead. And not just dead. <laughs> Even that wasn't, it was like, I don't want you to be mistaking about this either. We don't, want, we don't want anybody to misconstrue this to mean severely wounded, emotionally traumatized, and comatose. No. Crucified, dead, and buried. And not just buried. <laughs> not, just, not just crucified. Uh, not just dead. Not just buried. Buried long enough for decomposition to happen. Through the whole weekend. Dead on Friday, dead through the weekend, into Sunday. Three days dead. Crucified, dead, buried, long time. You got it? <laughs> you got it? Three simple words that mean a lot. Jesus was deliberately, intentionally made into a dead pile of physical matter in need of burial and left to rot. I'm sorry to be so crass about the Son of God. It is a sad, sad truth. He was left a pile, a messy pile of flesh and bones, buried and gone. Seriously down. But for a purpose. Down in preparation for the greatest up moment in history. <laughs> but first, a quick detour to hell and back. Okay, let's figure this out. This is a crazy notion right in the middle of the creed. And then Jesus goes to hell and everybody just reads right through that. It's like, oh yeah, of course. No, what does that mean? Theologically, you could write a book on this and it is explainable, but it's not that easily understandable. But I'm calling you to confess it so it must be important. Let's try to understand it. You need to keep Jesus' trip to hell in the context of what's coming in the creed. And that context is that Jesus will be raised to new life and on up to the highest throne. When he gets there, God will... <laughs> I'm, I'm being cute here. Uh, God will say to him something like this. You, my son, are the king now. Who are your people? You're the king. Who are your people? While you were on earth, 
Who did you get to follow you, to defer to you, to claim you as Lord, and to spend eternity with us? Again, God knows everything. I'm just, this is just for purposes of illustration. This little dialogue between God and Jesus I've made up in my own little head just to try to make a point, right? God says, welcome back, son. Who'd you invite to the party? Who did you reach out to to be part of your kingdom? To which Jesus would respond, everybody. God would be, you mean everybody? Everybody that you became in contact with, of course. No, 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 Jesus says, everybody. Everybody past, everybody present, everybody future. No one stayed beyond the reach of my arms. To which God would say, hey, that's my line. <laughs> I'm the one that said, is the Lord's arm too short? And to which Jesus would say, yes, I'm, I, of course, but everything you say is what I say. So your lines are my lines. And again, again, I digress, right? So this is a little conversation that's going on in my head. And God says, yes, of course. So you included everyone, past, present, future. How'd you get the past people? To which Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you how I got the people from the past if you don't get mad at me. God says, of course I won't get mad at you. And so Jesus says, okay, for the people from the past, I went to hell. <laughs> to which I imagine God saying something like, I thought I told you never to go into the pride land Simba. You know, it's like the movies, they come so close sometimes, right? So Jesus goes to hell. Why? Because God has always established, since the beginning of his church, since the beginning of, of, of the whole faith movement with Abraham and Sarah, he has always established that faith in the promise, in the promise, which was a Jewish mystery for thousands of years that we now understand to be Jesus. The promise of God for those in antiquity was always Jesus before they knew it. Jesus is the way to forgiveness and sin and reconciliation to God and eternal life. And that has always been true even before he arrived. So, before Jesus, without Jesus, souls of the faithful had no alternative but to go into a holding pattern apart from God. That's hell. By definition, where God is not is hell. With the promise having not come yet, they're waiting. They're waiting for Jesus. So this beautiful picture, when Jesus comes and does his work, he goes back and scoops in everybody that was waiting on him that never really fully knew of him. It's this beautiful comprehensive understanding of Jesus' ultimate purpose by the writers of the creed. They got it. They understood that this was not simply about describing who the king is. The creed doesn't just describe who the king is. The creed describes who the kingdom is. Who's in the kingdom? And Jesus says, I went after everybody past, present, and future. I've forgotten about nobody. I don't know if you've ever been to a Japanese steakhouse. 
We love going to these places about once a year because as much as you love them, you're kind of sick for a day or two after them. So you got to spread it out a little bit. But they're really fun to go to. You know, you got the, the Japanese chef who's throwing knives and sticks all over the place. He's got this big griddle upon which he's cooking all the different foods all the time, right? And we went this one particular time and someone around the table asked for a specialty item uh, at the time, I think it was chicken with no teriyaki sauce. Now, side note, these guys are not really all that amenable to special orders. They're cooking all this food the same way every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. So he obliges and pushes this whole set of chicken over here to the right side. And he's doing his stuff, man. He's cooking. This is not normally in his cross check. He's got all this going. He's got rice going here. He's got chicken going here. He's got uh, shrimp going here. He's flicking tails around. Stuff's going into the trash. Like, it's going great. And I'm watching this chicken, and I'm like, when do I tell the guy? Uh, is it really my place to step in and talk to a chef about how to cook a meal? But I'm watching that chicken, and he ain't watching that chicken. And it, until you could smell it burning. That's not the way King Jesus, he doesn't forget about the chicken. Man. He doesn't forget about what's, what's been passed. Jesus is on that instantly. His first maneuver, before he, he's, he's being raised to new life, but he goes directly after those that had been so faithful to him without knowing it from the past. It's awesome. Jesus going into the pride lands is a beautiful picture of Jesus' all-inclusive reach to bring those who would trust him into his kingdom. As for those following Christ's time on earth, the plan is the church. The church is the new spirit-filled flesh of God. Jesus says to the faithful few, with my presence within you, you are the new me. The church, armed with the truth of Scripture, summarized, if you will, in the creed, empowered by the Spirit, the church are responsible to spread the truths and to scoop in the new citizens of the new kingdom of God. But of course, we know not everyone is scooped up. Not everybody is scooped in. Not everyone who reads the words or hears the words but it is only those who believe. Only those of faith. Only those who trust. And who gets to decide who believes and who has faith, who trusts? You do. Who gets to judge? Jesus. He's not just king. He's also judge. He gets to say who it is that believes and who does not. You and I are going to be condemned many times over in this lifetime by other people. And none of that really matters. The only one that matters is Jesus. He's the one that's going to judge you and he will do it rightly. More than your words, more than my words, more than our confession. It is about the true belief in our heart. The belief behind your confession is your access card. Those who truly believe in their heart what their mouth confesses about Jesus, as determined by Jesus alone, receive all the promises and goodness of God now and forever. Paul put it like this. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. 
Not everyone is scooped up. Only the ones who trust Jesus as determined by Jesus. Jesus separates the believer from the non-believer. God has a place for you. He has promises for you. God wants to lift you up and put your feet on a rock. He promises to grow you and to fill you with peace and joy and to provide and give you purpose in and beyond this world. If you believe. He wants to transform you and purify you and make you like his son through his son. You, the believer, only the believers in God's king get to enjoy God's promises and his purification. We've said this, we've said this every week. Belief is the currency of the kingdom. Without it, you cannot experience the promises or the presence of God. Belief is the currency of the kingdom. I said this last week, the creed doesn't make it easier to believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It puts before us the very unimaginable, inexplicable things of God, the Son, and the Spirit, and invites you to believe where nothing but belief can get you there. Why should we believe? Why should we believe that Jesus is king? There's a couple pretty decent reasons. <laughs> and then one really big one. Here's some very decent ones. You know, there were some 50 to 75 odd foreshadowings, uh, prophecies, if you will, predictions of the coming Messiah, and Jesus met them all. Oh, that's a lot. We talked about this last week, the virgin birth. That's a, that's a tough one to, 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 to fake, you know? A life of miracles, right? We see in the gospel, Jesus demonstrated power over all of creation, the weather, the, 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 the environment, uh, the, everything, the, the spiritual world, the physical world, all of it. He demonstrated his power over all of it. And we see this compelling, unimaginable moment of, of death that could have been avoided. I don't know how much you think about that, of, uh, of what it takes for the most powerful man to ever walk the face of the earth to be completely innocent of any charge to defer and allow the punishment to go through. Think of your own life. We have trouble backing down and, and deferring on things where we're wrong. Can you imagine deferring to an ugly, unjust accusation and corrupt system that's condemning you to death and you've done nothing wrong and you allow it. To, to me, that, 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 that's arguably a bigger miracle than anything he, than he'd ever done in my estimation. 
But here's the best reason, the craziest part of the creed, this up story, right? Back where we started, Jesus was deliberately made into a dead pile of physical matter in need of burial and left to rot. But God, just like creation, where his spirit hovered over the darkness and the void and breathed creation into life, just like the virgin birth where the spirit of God overshadowed Mary and conceived life into her empty womb, just like with Jesus, how God flashed through him miraculously into so many spaces during his lifetime, just like all of that, he arrived in this darkened tomb with an utterly dead body and breathed the eternal life of heaven back into him. Then he swept away this big heavy stone and sent him on his way 40 more days and right up to the throne to the right hand of God. Where he started. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is king because he's always been king. The only difference is now the world has literally seen God experienced and witnessed his power, have been dumbfounded by his humility and shocked by his servitude. And now this, to have been risen utterly out of a dead state, is the final affirmation of why we can believe he's king. So here's where we are, church. We have a king. We have an example for what life is supposed to be like. We have a savior. We have each other and we have work to do. Here it is in a nutshell. Here's the work we have to do. First, we believe in God, the almighty father, Jesus, the son, the king, and the work of the ever-present Holy Spirit. We believe. That's our first work. I believe. The second thing, consider all the people within your reach and start praying for them. We use this acronym BLESS10, which you can find through other means. I'm just going to hit the B and the 10, right? We pray. We begin by praying for 10 people that are far from God. It always starts there. It's a great exercise of even just thinking through who your connections are with people who are far from God. You have them, you might not see them. And if you don't see them, you're not going to be able to be used in their life. You've got to see them and then you've got to start praying for them. And then God will do stuff that will blow your mind. Trust me. You've got to start praying for the people within your sphere of influence who are far from God. Third, take ownership of the connections, the relational connections that you have in your life. Behave as though a half a dozen folks in your life, particularly now during this pandemic and this quarantine, as though a half a dozen folks otherwise wouldn't typically be contacted by anybody if you don't. Who are they? Six people within your sphere. Imagine that they are detached and disconnected from the church and it's up to you. And don't overthink it. Just text them. (laughs) Just email them. Start a little Zoom group to connect once a week. Whatever it takes, connect, connect, connect with other believers. And then draw people 
into your God-oriented life. Just tell people what God's doing in your life. Ask people what God's doing in their life. You might even consider the 270 lap that's going on next Sunday, the 19th. Conflicts a little bit with our Sunday night service, but you can pull it off. Look it up. 104.9 is it nine? The river is, uh, is coasting it or pushing it off. It's, it's right around 270. I would encourage you to do it. Why? So that you can tell other people you're doing it and ask them what you could pray for while you're driving. I very rarely run into somebody, no matter how unfriendly they are to God. When I say, can I pray for you about something? They just, they just awkwardly say, I am uh, my, uh, my family. Or, you know, they, don't, they don't shut you down. They'll go give you something. And now you've started something. Engage. That's what we have to do. All of this is a struggle, right? That's what we've been calling this series. It's a struggle. It's a struggle of God's, if you will. A struggle of, of, of the people and the things in this life, that are, this life that are competing for your attention. These idols, these other lowercase g gods that, 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 that cry for our attention. And your resources and your allegiance. The bad and the good news is that the practices of your life, where your attention is, where your resources go, they reveal your deepest beliefs. They show you who and what you trust. And you're going to discover pretty quickly that you need forgiveness and grace. And this is the Jesus who is our king. He's not just a king. He's our savior. His followers, you and me, church, more so than being even good believers, need to be humble believers. Because we can't really get it quite right. Start there. When it comes to the creed and the truth that it gives us and the belief that it calls for, Move toward King Jesus with humility and see what kind of a wonderful reception you get.